The Real Food Reel is proudly sponsored by Melrose Health. Founded in 1979, Melrose Health has been delivering improved health over three decades by developing natural, delicious and innovative health foods from the best natural and organic ingredients. Their healthy kitchen oils range has just launched and includes my favourites, liquid coconut oil, grass-fed ghee and avocado oil. Visit melrosehealth.com.au or check out at Melrose Health on Instagram to learn more. Welcome to The Real Food Real. I'm Steph Lowe, the natural nutritionist. We're shaking things up on the podcast and each week I am joined by our cast of experts, including Kirsty Worth, Phil Maffetone, Kale Brock, Ali McLean, Katie Pettuccini, and so many more leaders in the fields of real food, gut health, sports performance, holistic wellness, and optimizing your health, metabolism, and longevity. While you're tuning into today's episode, would you take a screenshot of your smartphone and share it on social media with the hashtag RealFoodReal? I'd absolutely love to know that you're tuning in. And while you're there, why not share this episode with a friend who also needs to hear our information goldmines and aha moments. Sharing the show means we can continue our mission of simplifying nutrition and showing the world that health starts with what you choose to put on your plate. Without further ado, let's dive into this week's episode of The Real Food Real. In episode 198 of The Real Food Reel, we are joined by wellness rock star, Dr. Damien Christoph. In today's episode, we explore the impact of genetics and evolution on our food preferences and intolerances. We dive into celiac disease and gluten intolerance, hay fever and beneficial probiotic strains, Damo's thoughts on blood typing, and so much more. Hello, Damo. Welcome back to the show. Thanks, Steph. Thanks for having me again. It's always a pleasure to be with you. Yeah, thank you for joining us. It's a topic today that um, you and I have alluded to before. We briefly spoke about, you know, food preferences from a genetic standpoint, and it is quite multifactorial. So I wanted to get you back on the show to talk about this topic in itself. Um, I just wanted to kind of set the scene, though, in terms of that genetic role, if we look at, say, the evolution of humans and and how things have changed over the years? Yeah, for sure. I think there was, I think over the last, say, eight to six years, and I I, I go backwards in that that time frame just because of the the speed at which information has been travelling, there's been a a, a bit of a concern around and a bit of almost misinformation to suggest that humans haven't evolved. Um, and there's some, you know, for a long time. So humans haven't evolved for, well, we have evolved, we continue to evolve every single day. But there was um, some conjecture and, and many um, people were confused with some of the information that was actually uh, shared at, at some of the congresses and some of the, the natural medicine uh, information uh, portals uh, that suggested that humans haven't evolved for some 250,000 years. Now, Whilst we've maintained um, very similar biological function uh, and whilst we've maintained, um, you know, the, the, 
the bulk of the way in which a human being exists has remained the same. So, for example, when we spoke about this on one of our previous shows with regards to the, the nervous system, the sympathetic nervous system, um, as it was back then, is very similar to the way it is you know, today. And you know, so too is digestion. But we have actually evolved in terms of species, um, primarily because of our amazing ability to adapt to our environment. And largely that's due to two things. One is the human genome having the ability to um, adapt to the environment, and, and I think that's really important to understand. But also, possibly and probably even more significantly, um, the ability of the microbiome genome, um, or, or I think they call it the microgenome, I don't actually, what do they call that these days? Um, but the, the microbiota, the bacteria in and on our body, that DNA has evolved and shifted and changed and that has allowed us to adapt to our environment as well. So it's, it's somewhat accurate that we haven't evolved, but it's also very inaccurate that we haven't evolved because we really have um, stepped through many phases of evolution and we see that with just simple little things that may have changed and we can see that in our environment today. Some people get hay fever, some people don't. Some people have food allergies to shellfish and some people don't. Some people have anaphylaxis to peanuts and some people don't um, and, and so on and so forth. And so even to that extent, that is some degree of immune um, evolution, which translates to our body's own evolution um, and evolutionary state. Yeah, it's interesting that you use those examples because, you know, we also see, you know, a relative increase in, in prevalence of those issues and, you know, immediately we've sort of got to explore why but before we do what are your thoughts on the genetic role there and and is there um do you believe there's a link as to why some people are more susceptible than others there's no doubt that uh, we pass on um you know various diseases and and um and problems associated with our environment or sensitivities associated with the environment through our genes there's no doubt that actually does happen and it has been proven and certainly we see in various um, cases or types of cancers, we see that there's a, a strong genetic causation um, or a strong genetic link um, to those sorts of diseases. That, you know, that, that is absolutely the case. And it's also um, noticeable too that where celiac disease exists in a family, it's highly likely that celiac disease will continue to exist in that bloodline as it continues on. And celiac disease is, is a severe allergy um, and intolerance to gluten, uh, which results in um, chronic malabsorption issues, bone loss, increase in certain types of cancer risk, um, um, heart disease, iron level changes, vitamin D issues. There's so many problems associated with celiac disease. But some people can have the celiac genes and not trigger a celiac disease diagnosis but still may have a sensitivity to gluten in foods so they might have a what's called a non-celiac gluten sensitivity it's still genetic based but it doesn't ever go into a full-blown allergy um, which you know celiac disease is so genes have a complicating factor there's that let's just put it you know say that but genes are really a set of instructions that the body can work from uh, given a particular environment so we have the ability to change our environment which is a unique thing for um, the animal kingdom, that we can have so much control over our environment and, and humans are very, very adaptable. 
So we can change our housing, change our sleep, our movement, our food, our thoughts. Uh, we can change every, almost every single factor that's in our life. We can alter, and that alters uh, the way in which our genes are then utilised. And, and so where we can identify certain gene patterns or the genotypes that we do have or the gene mutations that we might have, um, we can alter uh, our environment to help our body respond better to our environment, if that makes sense. Oh, absolutely. We always say that you know, genetics, genetics load the gun, but environment pulls the trigger. And I think celiac disease is a really good example of that, that people can understand okay. because we can see people essentially being born with celiac disease, which means that that environmental trigger was around at a very young age, but you can still get celiac disease in adulthood. And that means that, you know, your genes haven't changed, obviously, but the environmental trigger occurred later in life. And for a lot of people, that's, um, you know, that's an easy one to understand because the trigger is so clear. It's gluten, right? So it's that final piece of bread or that's that final exposure to gluten that can switch on those genes. Um, but there can also be other causes like stress that can turn on that genetic predisposition. Yeah, for sure. And we see that, you know, particularly with type 1 diabetes, you know, a stressful event can trigger someone's diabetes. The pancreas mm -hmm. will shut down. They will no longer produce enough insulin. Um, and, of course, that, um, that's, that's a really big problem. Uh, so there's, there's different things. It could just be a fright. Or it might be the loss of a loved one. Um, those, those situations can actually trigger a genetic response. And again, that's alteration of our environment. So it's important to think that or to consider that our environment consists of the things that can be seen and also the things that aren't seen. So yes, food and nutrition, um, you know, uh, uh, contact with our community, involvement, engagement, purpose, all of those sorts of things are, you know, triggers for our environment. But there's other things that we don't see, pollutants, um, emotions, um, you know, toxins, all those sorts of things that we're not necessarily aware of can actually affect our genes too. So um, in that regard, we will then, we can also develop sensitivities to our environment. And I remember developing hay fever, and this is just a really simple thing. You know, I might just digress a little bit here, Steph. I had a really, really stressful time when I was in New Zealand. Great, very, very productive, but very, very stressful at the same time. And so as a result, when I moved back to Australia and I had a proper immune response, I was living in Middle Park at the time, and Middle Park in Melbourne's full of plane trees. And so because I started to have an immediate immune response, um, because my stress levels had dropped and I was starting to rest again and started to take care of myself, um, I started to develop um, hay fever. And, uh, and anything that I came into contact with um, in large amounts, I started to develop these sensitivities to. So I, I started to develop a sensitivity to things like passion fruit, kiwi fruit, um, plane trees, uh, you know, various other, you know, things that would, you know, would, would normally not have affected me in the past, but because of my stress and my then subsequent immune stimulation, I started to get that. And, uh, and so then I had to calm that down. So I triggered some genetic responses or some immune responses within my body. I'm not sure, you know, which it was or whether it was one or not the other. Um, but I was able to calm that down by changing my environment. Yes, I moved away from the plane trees, and, but I was also able to take and utilise probiotics to down-regulate an immune response, um, which has shifted me away from having hay fever and plane tree needle um, sensitivities and so on and so forth. So I, I think it's very important for people who are listening to this to recognise that you can change your environment and that will change your outward expression 
um, of symptoms and also your outward expression of your genetic potential. Yeah, absolutely. That would have been a really fascinating first-hand experience for you, having it lived was. in London previously. Mm, absolutely. A lot of people, yeah. I find, they seem to experience the first onset of hay fever when they're in a new environment, say they've moved from the tropics, for example. So you think it was mainly the stress, um, but obviously a new exposure to that, to that particular tree as well? Yeah, there could have been a whole lot of different stresses. So, yes, there was the stress of study. There was the stress of living away from my family. There was stress in flying, stress in setting up a new life back in Melbourne, stress of moving into a, you know, a different location for my workplace. Mm. Um, there's different stresses, different um, home environments, so different bacteria loading. There's a whole host of different stressors. So it's not just emotional stress that I was experiencing. There was, you know, potentially food stressors, celebrations. So let's let's you know be honest here. Probably some alcohol stressors. Mm-hmm. There was there was things that were stressing my body out um, that I think is important to recognise. Triggered some stuff within my body that I needed to then go on to, you know, complete repairing, mm-hmm. um, as opposed to just letting fester and become a big problem. Yeah, for sure. And I love that you mentioned the use of probiotics as well because. If we circle back to what we were discussing earlier, it is the environmental change to the microbiome that can definitely cause either the onset of particular food allergies or maybe it is an external allergy like hay fever. Um, And I think in the West we often look to say more conventional treatments like um, is it Zyrtec, I shouldn't probably say a brand, but, you know, we know that (laughs) probiotics, we know that um, particular strains, including LGG and um, lactobacillus casey are really effective to help reduce allergic symptoms. And it does speak to the importance of looking after your immune system, which we know is largely found in the gut, up to 80 to 90%, in fact. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Well, and it, it's interesting because those strains of bacteria are also considered transient but commensal. So they do live in the gut um, and they, so they, they live in the gut but not in you know, incredibly large numbers. But they instruct the, they instruct the villi of the gastrointestinal system to behave in a particular way. So the mucus or the, the mucin-producing cells in the gastrointestinal system respond to these bacterial signals that then either down-regulates or up-regulates an immune response um, in the gastrointestinal, uh, um, the gastrointestinal system associated lymphoid tissue. So we've got the GALT, which is the 80% of our immune system um, where, or our lymphatic system, and that's directly linked to the gastrointestinal function that's um, altered by the bacteria that transiently flow through our gastrointestinal system. And those two strains, which you mentioned, are unbelievably important in, in altering the way in which our body responds. So it's complicated and we can make it sound way more simple than what it actually is. But essentially what Steph's saying and, and what you know we are all talking about at the moment is finding ways to regulate our um, environment, our internal environment, our microbiome by taking probiotics, eating pre and probiotic rich foods, um, using different types of fibers um, and, and, you know, introducing uh, resistant starch into our diet. So there's things that we're now learning will assist your microbiome in being very, very strong, but also understanding that many of the bacteria that we take orally 
will actually be transient um, by nature. Yeah, which I think is an important conversation because they do play a really important role. As you say, they're commensal. Um, but I think we're not so used to speaking about the different roles that probiotics play because the really common, you know, the bifidobacteria or the lactobacilli strains are they're definitely the most popular and that's from, you know, where the research has been up to this point in time. Um, but there are lots of individual strains that have been shown to have quite specific benefits, which I'd love to be, you know, someone's or part of someone's treatment plan if they are experiencing intolerances or allergies. Yeah, hundred percent. But I think, and a great point that you raised there is the specificity, like strain specificity. So, um, you know, you mentioned um, Lactobacillus casei. You also mentioned LGG, and uh, and and their specific strains. And what we're finding now uh, in our marketplace, and we see this stuff in in health food stores, in um, different environments, in multiple marketing companies, we're seeing that a non-strain specific or a copycat strain is being sold. Um, and that, that's where things start to become a little bit confusing for the consumer because there's synthesized strains of the original strains. So what some companies are doing are getting the original researched strains um, and synthesizing or almost, I suppose you could say, genetically modifying these strains of bacteria to be almost exactly the same as the original strain, um, but they don't behave in the same way. So you might see Lactobacillus rhamnosus, um, but it's not Lactobacillus rhamnosus LGG, which mm. is the LGG strain that we're talking about. You might see that that's sold next to each other and people go, oh, that's $20 and that one is $50, but it's got the same strain in it. It's not. They've got bacteria from the same family in it, but not bacteria... Um, with the same members of the family that um, have a particular function, if that makes sense. So yeah. um, it, it, it's important for people to consider what are they actually buying and, and what are they actually putting into their body? Will it actually do anything? You know, so there's some, there's some strains of bacteria, and we can see this in our microbiome testing. So you can look at microbiota testing, and they'll talk about the strains of bacteria. So it would be classified as, say, I don't know, let, let's say it's classified as a... a, a a bifidobacterium infantis, and then there's a, a, a classification number there. Um, that classification number is the type of bacteria that you've got in your body. Um, but that could be totally different to what Ian has in his body and what I have in my body and what Amber has in her body. We might all have bifidobacterium infantis, but we might have slightly different um, strains of bifidobacterium. So we then need to find strains that are similar to it um, in terms of its function, as opposed to just putting in there a whole bunch of bifidobacterium infantis that have no known function, if that makes sense. Yeah. So it's, it's a tricky one. Um, and I think that we're, we're, at the, we're at the ebb and at the forefront of change and shift and understanding. Um, and so I think it's really important that when people are selecting probiotics, they're selecting ones with specific strains that have been researched, as opposed to ones that are just kind of a, a best guess scenario. Yeah, well, I agree. And, you know, I think Inner Health Plus has been probably that product that has made probiotics a lot more familiar to, say, Australian households. But we've got to really acknowledge that the, it's quite different. Like the genus might be Lactobacilli, but that's an acidophilus and that's the species, right? And then we also see yes. it yes. contains the bifidobacterium, 
which is the species, and it contains the lactis, which is the species. And so, you know, we speak about these lactobacilli and bifido, and I'm guilty of it. I speak about them as a whole, but I think that is where things can get a little bit confusing because it's the species and then it's the strain that really determines the role, so the significance in from a clinical standpoint. And, you know, with that comes the specific dose depending on what we're trying to treat as well. 100%. Yeah, absolutely, Steph. That's a really, really good point. And, you know, I think it's um, if there's any confusion left with that, think about a family of people that all have the same surname. So mm-hmm. you got, you know, um, Mac Northeast, Ian Northeast, and Steph Northeast. I'm just using that because that's easier as three. <laughs> Mac Northeast uh, does something. Ian Northeast is a chiropractor, and Steph Northeast is one of the world's greatest nutritionists. <laughs> if you went to Steph Northeast and asked Steph Northeast to be a chiropractor, she wouldn't be able to do it because her training is a nutritionist mm. and if you went to Ian Northeast and asked him to be a nutritionist he probably wouldn't be able to speak he wouldn't be able to say any words because he wouldn't know what to do but he's a really really great chiropractor one of the world's greatest chiropractors is mm. Ian and so and Mac I, I, I don't know what Mac does but if we asked Mac he's to do fiery. any of those things mm. he's, he's a fiery oh there you go yeah. so if we asked Mac to put out a fire he could do that but if we asked Steph to put out a fire she could probably put out the fire but probably not as good so, but we need to be asking our members of the family to do the things that they're trained to do. So, if we want to decrease allergies, we don't just go and get lactobacillus, whatever. We're mm. getting lactobacillus rhamnosus LGG mm-hmm. um, because that's what it does. So, in other words, we go to Steph for nutrition, we go to Ian uh, for Cairo, and we go to Mac to put out fires. <laughs> I love that. That's really, really good. And I think. Um, a good example, just circling back, because you mentioned lactobacillus rhamnosus, so that's genus and species, but then the yes. strain is the GG, and that's what we're looking for in this instance when we're talking about um, obviously hay fever, but it's so many benefits for normal digestive function, especially um, beneficial for kids. But I know that the high doses of LGG is also really important for eczema and i'm talking about 20 billion a day um so that's where it needs to get quite specific well i even use higher doses than that so if i'm treating um an allergy for example hay fever or cats or whatever else i'm using unbelievably high doses of Mm -hmm. lgg to get an immediate um, response because in my in my figuring um, and I don't know what is the lowest effective dose in this regard. I haven't actually tried it and maybe there's a study to be done there. So maybe if there's 25 people listening to this podcast with allergies and hay fever, if you contact Steph and I, maybe we'll put you on a little study to try and do some research with it. Um, but I've been using a really high dose. I've been using um, 80 billion CFUs three times a day for four weeks to manage allergies and hay fever and we're getting an amazing result. Like off the scale, incredible result. And, um, but I don't know if that would work if I just used 20 billion. Mm. So, but what I, the reason why I'm using such a high dose is because I'm really trying to create a shift in the microbiome. We're talking about 70 trillion bacteria in the, in the gut. Um, so if we're talking 70 trillion or 100 trillion bacteria in the gut, but we're only throwing in there 20 billion. 
it's a long way away from being a really strong and effective loading. So my thought is that we throw in lots over a short period of time and try and bring about a change. And I've been, it's been really successful. So I think it's, I think it's a really good thing. So, but however, I, I would only ever do that um, with a practitioner. Because <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> we've, we've got to be able to see um, if there's any effect, side effect, you know, desired effect. It's not something you want to risk. And, I'm by no means at all suggesting that that would work for you, but I've been using that with some people with great effect. I've been using other amounts too with other people too. So it's, I'm just saying that I'm using really high doses in some people. Yeah. Interesting. Again, just speaking to the specificity of it. So there is a lot to be considered as well as, you know, obviously looking at the whole person. So looking at what else needs to be addressed, not just probiotic strains, although they do play a very significant role. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. My intention wasn't to talk about um, hay fever, but that's been really, really fascinating. Um, I wanted to go back to the kind of gluten conversation we were having earlier, just because I think that this is an area, you know, I've been involved in for probably nearly a decade now and I still get the argument that is um like you know my great grandmother used to or has has always been fine with eating wheat or um you know I don't have a I don't feel like I've got a problem with it um I don't get any, any digestive symptoms like people get quite defensive i think maybe because they're quite attached to their bread, which I appreciate. Um, Mm. But I think there's a lot to break down there when it comes to things like the genetic um, tolerance of wheat, but not to mention how different it looks in this day and age and what else it's exposed to. So over to you. (laughs) (laughs) It it is a really different crop to the way in which it used to be. And Cindy O'Meara talks about this a lot too Mm. in her What's uh, What's With Wheat documentary that she did. And um, you know, if we go back a hundred years, we used to, you know, used to grow to be about six feet high, almost as high as corn, like a really similar sort of crop in terms of the way in which it would grow. And so when it was harvested, um, the grain was, you know, really, really high, but it took a lot to grow it It'd take quite a long time to grow a crop of grain, maybe a whole season. These days, um, the crops have been hybridized to the extent that we now yield around three times as much wheat per plant. And the, the, the plants grow about one third of the height, so only about only to about you know two and a half to three feet high. So they uh, they grow very very quick. They yield a lot of, of wheat, um, and as a result, there's a large amount of gluten. Um, but the other thing that has also happened with the hybridisation of our wheat is that um, much of our crops have now been made what's called Roundup ready, Steph. And Roundup ready means that. They're genetically modified to the extent that they can withstand herbicides um, such as glyphosate. And, and that in itself creates a significant problem. Yes, it's great for the farmer because the farmer can grow unbelievable crops and get huge yield. Um, and that might be assisting um, food shortages around the world. However, you can't do stuff to nature without an implication or without a problem on the other side. And so the downside to using glyphosate is that we're knocking off bacteria um, in the soil and we're knocking off bacteria on the plant and we're knocking off bacteria in the human. Um, and glyphosate is actually causing a significant problem. So um, Cindy O'Meara describes it as the glyphosate affecting 
a particular pathway called the shikimate pathway in, uh, in bacterial transcription um, and DNA transcription, and that there be, then becomes the big problem. My biggest concern is, you know, beyond the shikimate pathway, is that because we're killing off bacteria that live in the soil, these are the microorganisms that give life to the earth. And without the bacteria in the soil, we don't maintain healthy soils and we don't maintain healthy plants. And so as a result, we start to rely on um, other outside factors, external factors to encourage a plant to grow or to, you know, to yield fruit or whatever it is. And so I have concern about that. The other thing to consider too is that because the rapid hybridization of the wheat, the protein structure and the quantity of the protein gluten in wheat um, has changed significantly over time in a really short space of time. And so where um, the Greeks and Italians and the French and the Spanish might have been using wheat for thousands upon thousands upon thousands upon thousands of years in the past, it's changed a lot from what they've been able to, from what they evolved to be able to handle compared to where they've evolved to be able to handle the current modern wheat that we get exposed to today. So there's diseases and conditions and problems associated with the rapid shift and change or hybridization of the proteins that we're getting exposed to now compared to what we were exposed to in the past. And so some people will be okay with it and other people won't be okay with it. And this again highlights the genetic variance that, all, you know, that we're all very, very different um, and that it's not just one size fits all. Yeah, that's so interesting. And I think it is definitely more, or it's multifactorial because it's not only the wheat, it's definitely what we're spraying the wheat in the West. And I don't feel like that's on most people's radar, unfortunately. So we've definitely got to think about, well, how long has Roundup been around for? Like a drop in the ocean in relation to our evolutionary history. So, you know, we don't have the ability to even process that toxin. So for a lot of people that can manifest in huge issues. Yeah. Um, but I love what you speak to about the, the cultural differences as well because, you know, a lot of people will say, and I was talking to Kale about this, you know, when he goes to these tiny regions of, of you know, southern France, he's totally fine eating the, the products over there. And, you know, the yeah. conversation that we had around that, well, it's definitely not the wheat that we're getting in this modern agricultural Australia. It's coming probably off a farm out the back of the the restaurant that he ate from. So again, very different end result. 100%, 100%. You know, there's the preparation methods, there's the storage methods, there's the type of wheat. It is interesting because much of our wheat crops throughout the world are very, very similar these days. Um, but there could also be variations in the type of yeast that we're using. And so the yeast that we're using in Australia would be different yeast to what they use in, um, in Europe. Um, the wheat crop could be, could be very, very different. And we might be just looking at one ingredient and not considering other ingredients. Maybe we've, we've shifted to use a different form of Saccharomyces here in Australia that's you know, not really as beneficial for the gut as, say, the Saccharomyces that they're using over in, um, in Europe to you know, get their, their breads to rise. Maybe it's as simple as that. I don't, I don't think it's as simple as that. I think that there's definitely a wheat and gluten issue. Um, but I think that if we're only looking at one part of the ingredient system or maybe one part of the environment, we might be missing another big piece of the picture. Mm. Um, so there's probably a lot more to, to consider there and a lot more to look at and so many more conversations to have. And I love one of my big things that I say, um, and Monash University has a massive poster up in Clayton um, that says science 
is uh, best used when it helps you ask better questions. Yeah. Now, I love that because you and I, Steph, can easily fall into the trap of um, being a little bit reductionistic because we go, well, gluten's the bad thing, so gluten's really bad. But we, we could, because science has proved that gluten is bad, we could just stop at that. But because both you and I have inquiring minds, I suspect that what it's going to do for us is help us ask better questions. And we go, well, what else is actually going on? Is it a microbiome thing? Is it a, um, another ingredient factor? Is there an other environmental issues? Are people stuck in sympathetic dominance? Are there other factors that we can consider that might be um, issues associated with that or, or you know, bundled into that? Um, and I think we'll probably find that 10 years down the track, we'll probably work out that gluten was certainly part of the problem, much the same as what we learned um, soy. We used to think soy was unbelievable, then we thought soy was really bad, and now we actually understand that soy has actually some solutions in some environments, but it depends also too on how we treat the soy. You know, if it's just soy beans in the form of edamame, it's very, very different to, you know, soy milk every single day in your latte. It's, it's quite a different experience. So um, there's lots of questions to be had there, and I think... Um, keeping in mind genetic differences with um, each of our individual beings I think is important, but also maybe trying to get some kind of clarity around where did we come from? How have we evolved? Um, have we evolved to be able to handle eating some wheat or have we evolved to be able to, or, or have we not evolved to be able to handle eating any wheat at all? Um, have we evolved to be able to eat coconut fruit or have we had no evolutionary exposure to coconut fruit? Um, and, you know, and, and we can look at that through blood typing. That's one way of considering the way in which we might have actually evolved. Yeah, that is really interesting. And I think definitely you can start with looking sort of from a more cultural standpoint, like if you do have more of a European um, descendancy, then that might help explain why you tolerate some foods over, say, your friends or colleagues. But how would you use the blood type to further specify that? What's interesting about the blood type, and Peter Diadamo did all this work uh, with his dad, actually. His dad did the bulk of the work and then Peter kind of developed it a little bit. Um, what's interesting is that they looked at um, genetic variations and food, um, I suppose, patterns through the evolution of different blood types. They mapped where the O-type blood came from, the A-type blood came from, AB and the B-type blood came from. And they looked at the ways or the foods that these people have been exposed to. Then what they did is they got a panel of foods and they exposed people to these panels of food based on their blood type. Um, and then they measured the lectin response to the food. So they were able to um, chemically induce an allergic or sensitivity response to foods classified according to blood types um, and then were able to determine what blood types are more sensitive to certain types of foods. And they drew from that, very loose science, but they drew from that uh, an assumption that there was a, um, a, a panel of foods that were beneficial, a panel of foods that were neutral, and a panel of foods that were detrimental to a particular blood type based on that research or that science. Now, that research and science, unfortunately, didn't go very far. However, I've been using that approach to um, you know, lifestyle and diet selection for 20 odd years and for the most part it's a really good place to start like it's not the answer it's not the be and end all it's just it helps to narrow down the most appropriate diet for an individual 
it doesn't actually provide the most appropriate diet for the individual, but it helps to narrow down what's the most appropriate diet for people. Um, and, it be, and I think the reason it does that is because it acknowledges evolution and it acknowledges ancestry. And so as we move into a phase away from paleo, move into a phase away from, you know, potentially also away from veganism, but moving towards a phase of diet which is probably more ancestral, I think we're going to find that an understanding or a greater understanding of how we've evolved, whether it be with our microbiome or with our own genetics, I think that's going to direct us in the way in which we eat, um, you know, in the future. Yeah, awesome. I look forward to learning more about that. But it was really interesting to explore this topic with you. Thank you, Damo. I think a lot of take-homes, but, you know, food for thought, like you said, just to, to get the ball rolling and to encourage people to do more research or to ask better questions. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Steph. Loved having this chat. It's they're such great chats to have, and they seriously they get me thinking a lot. And uh, yeah. and, I, and I hope it gets your listeners thinking a lot as well, because I now have to go and rethink some of the chapters I'm writing in my book when I say things like that. So oh it's wow, yeah, it's, um, <laughs> it would be the never ending project. So you might need to put some parameters around that. <laughs> I know, I know, right? Oh dear, far out. But great chat. Thanks so much, Steph. Awesome to have you on the show. We'll speak to you again soon. Thank you so much for listening, team. Make sure you dive into the show notes over at thenaturalnutritionist.com.au forward slash podcast. Now, before you go, can I ask you a favor? I'd be so grateful if you would leave me a five-star review on iTunes. I personally read every review and comment and love hearing your aha moments and takeaways from each episode. Together, we can continue to spread the real food love. See you next time on The Real Food Reel. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.